0: This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation, the Dark people of the Dark Nation, and the Piscataway Konoy tribe.
1: We acknowledge that across these different contexts, we are connected by histories of colonial violence and dispossession. We pay our respects to the elders of these lands, past and present. And welcome to Trope Watchers, the show about pop culture and why it matters. I'm Scott.
0: And I'm Mia. And we're culture scholars who sneak as much pop culture into our classrooms as we can get away with.
1: We are joined today by special guest, Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg. Arnold is a publisher, author, educator and pop culture and comics historian. He's written and lectured on everything from zombies to the Marvel Cinematic Universe to classic film and science fiction history. So, Arnold, tell us a little bit more about yourself.
2: Well, I uh, I joke often with people that I've fallen into the trap of turning all of my hobbies and passions into jobs, but that's a good way of <laughs> putting it. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of the kind of things that I, like so many other people, grew up loving and, and watching and reading, all the kind of things that we can all get so passionate about in pop culture, I've wound up... Um, teaching courses about it, writing books, and otherwise exploring the history of it all. And what started as something that, like many fans, was something that you would just pursue on your own, was also something that I decided to make into a profession.
1: Okay, so last year your book, Journey of the Living Dead, was released. Talk us through this book a little bit. What is it about exactly?
2: Well, Journey of the Living Dead is sort of the culmination of about, I guess I'd say 12, 13 years or so of My work in uh, scholarship in the history of zombies and pop culture, specifically cinema, but also with some reference to uh, other permutations like television and games and comics and that sort of thing. And comics is an industry that I'm very steeped in from early on too, so that's always been a big part of it. Uh, Many years ago, I wrote a book with a co-author called Zombie Mania. We were one of the very first books that uh, attempted to... uh, Uh, index exhaustively everything that existed in the world of zombie film and at the time we did that around 2006 uh, when it came out from Telos Publishing in England there were about 570 zombie films in existence and we gave 80 of them full chapters and did all the kind of things you'd want to read about if you're a fan of them, behind the scenes you know, uh, our reviews, trivia breakdown, all kind of stuff and then a little deeper look at some of the themes of all of them uh, and then in the back of the book was an index of everything else. And over the years, I'd always wanted to revisit that book and um, had many different plans to do it in different ways. One of them was simply to expand zombie mania into something that would update it for the present. Came to realize eventually that the index would be about Yeah. 1,500 movies. Yeah. In, the, in the space of time between 2006 and now, the number of zombie movies more than doubled and it just was very, very daunting task. And in that time, I'd also taught my college course in Zombies and Popular Media, and done a lot of lecturing and other work related to it, and decided instead that as we were coming up on the 50th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead, and how important that movie is in terms of the pop culture legacy of the modern zombie, I decided to take a lot of material from Zombie Mania, and my course, and a lot of my other work, and instead do a book that looked at the whole century-long history of zombies in film and pay tribute to Night of the Living Dead through the movies that inspired it and then the movies that it in turn inspired and, uh, and chronicle that century through this book and also give educators some tools in the book to use should they want to use it as a means of teaching media literacy and critical thinking, which is my real passion with everything I do in education.
1: Yeah, it definitely feels like there's been an even greater explosion of zombie genre in general across all culture industries since that cutoff point for your previous publication. I know for myself personally, being um, a video game, I am kind of tired of zombie video games by this point. Um, But having listened to your um, interview on Nostalgia Theatre, it did remind me that that initial um, sort of breakthrough movie Night of the Living Dead is actually a film that I've thoroughly enjoyed in the past, and it was quite fun to revisit um, Romero's work. I know I've only actually seen his first two films, but um, it it was kind of a surprise to listen to that theater uh, to that episode and realize there are zombie films out there. I did enjoy Mia; they do exist. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. Um, Not not including Walking Dead, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Mia, you've read Journey of the Living Dead. What were your Mm -hmm. thoughts?
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm sure long-time listeners of Trope Watchers will realise by now that I have read a lot of books about zombies uh, for my PhD research, and it's been a bit of a mix. So I've read a lot of ones that have academic focuses, and often they will be... uh, I mean, a few of them were just kind of more straightforward, like, uh, film or English studies style, like, analysis, Uh, but a lot of them were looking at, like, um, you know, how the zombie can be used as a tool and what's really interesting about the zombie in the 21st century as this kind of figure. Uh, and then I've also read just a lot of ones that are a little bit more of that, um, I mean, sometimes written by academics but definitely intended for a public audience, uh, a little bit less critical, more just kind of cataloguing what's been out there. Um, and I liked that Journey of the Living Dead had this way of bringing – The academic side into it, but still having it be incredibly accessible uh, and something that I don't think that you would need to have any kind of academic interest to necessarily really enjoy. Um, But if you do, then there's those kind of extra tidbits that you can get out of. So I think like, I guess like our podcasts, um, it has that kind of scholarly discussion for public audiences feel to it. Uh, it's obviously informed by a huge amount of research analysis, uh, but I really enjoyed, uh, Arnold, your discussion of, you know, how does a zombie fit in an education context? Um, and I also really enjoyed how, like, the the tone of it, the voice, I found it... A lot of fun, and I like laughed at a few different points, which I—I mean, I'm not a big laugher during books, but there are a few things where I'm like. (laughs) Um, So, listeners, if you enjoy the academic podcast format of having a fun conversation informed by scholarship, which since you're listening to us, I hope you do, uh, then you'll probably like the way that Journey of the Living Dead is um, is written. Um, It also—I really liked the way it engaged. In different ways so that kind of interactive element um would be my favorite part of it I guess what sets it apart from the plethora of other books on zombies that I've uh, read so the the use of graphics like timelines of social and political events uh, relating to like the history of the zombie um there's different points in the book where There's like a food for thought section where like, you know, questions for further discussion are posed or like points where um, further reading is recommended. Uh, And uh, as you said, Arnold, that kind of discussion on your course on zombies uh, with things like film lists and how that the film lists evolved over time. Um, You know, I mean, Scott and I both think about education and media a lot like mass media and education but specifically I do think a lot about the value of the zombie uh, that is very much where my head has been for the last couple of years so I found that personally really interesting to me and I thought that was a really um, pretty unique addition to the book. I haven't really come across many books that do that kind of discussion like really talking about in a practical way this is how are we using it.
2: Well I, I, I have to say I'm just I'm very flattered and I'm very gratified that all these things that you've just listed are, are the things you appreciate in the book. I, I mean, that's. It really was a conscious effort in putting this book together to try to accomplish many of the things you just described. I I wanted there to be the balance. I wanted to know that a zombie fan could pick up the book and not feel like, oh my God, what am I reading a textbook? (laughs) You know, and enjoy it, but then also have a college professor somewhere who wants to do a media literacy course and maybe have something a bit different say, you know, I could create a unit out of this, or I can create a semester out of this. And Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that those things came across and that you appreciated it because out of everything that I've done to date and many of the other books I've worked on, this has been the closest I've come to really, um, a solo passion project that really is the culmination of so much work that I've done. So, uh, it's very satisfying to know that, that it hit a lot of the notes that I was hoping it would hit.
0: Yeah, it definitely reads like a passion project. And I mean, that you know, in the best possible way, I think. Um, I mean, there's, there's something to be said about a book that you could feel wasn't just like a, I mean, you know, we'll talking about um, the kinds of things before we started recording that impact you know work as an academic and it's sometimes you read books you're like oh definitely this person's just like I should probably write a book now (laughs) it's this time (laughs) or if you've got a permanent position I need to (laughs) so it it doesn't read like that it feels like this is something that you really wanted to write about and I like that oh that's great
1: Okay, so we've previously talked about the history of the zombie on the podcast and how it was influenced by various real-world events and social concerns. Something I wanted to raise with you, though, is this notion of the zombie film being only as good as its metaphor, uh, which is actually an idea raised during your guest appearance on Nostalgia Theatre. Horror and gothic subgenres are not really strangers to using its monstrous elements like vampires and werewolves as metaphors, but it does seem that the zombie subgenre specifically is kind of held dependent on this element. So do you agree with this notion? And if so, why do you think the zombie fiction is more susceptible to this line of thinking than other genres?
2: Well, um, I I don't 100% agree in the sense that in terms of pure entertainment, you know, you you can tell a fun story that doesn't necessarily... um, have to have any uh, conscious intent of commentary. Now, of course, one of the things I would often teach in any media literacy course is just about any piece of media can't avoid having some kind of meaning. Just even if it's just by virtue of the time when it's made, the people making it they infuse it with whatever they're thinking or feeling at the time. So you can usually find something, some sort of message or some sort of meaning. But uh, to create something with some kind of distinctive message. A conscious choice, uh, it definitely is something that has, in some sense, weighed on the zombie genre a great deal. And while I don't think it's necessarily important if you're just looking for a fun time, the ones that are historically the most resonant, the ones that have the most impact on our cultural understanding of how this creature can be used to communicate these ideas, they're all held to that standard. And a lot of that, I believe, it's not a. It's not a lot of these questions are not necessarily black and white. There are a lot of factors, but I do think one of the main ones is Romero himself, and in particular, Dawn of the Dead. And the the basic short version is, of course, that with Night of the Living Dead, he reinvented the concept of the zombie from all of the previous uh, cultural iterations that were far different, and created this creature that now stands the test of time and has become this modern conception of the zombie. But it carried with it also all these meanings, not least because of Dwayne Jones's presence and many other things happening in the 60s. Then, ten years later, he does Dawn of the Dead, and he does it with this conscious intent of, well, now people are going to be expecting this of me, so I better do something, and does the movie about consumption and consumerism and puts it in a mall. And it really feels like ever since that time, people started to feel well now we're all going to be expected to do that if you're going to do a zombie apocalypse movie you better have a theme or else it's going to be less than and while i don't necessarily think that matters in terms of telling a good story and you can tell many of the same stories again in different ways with similar themes uh, i think that's where a lot of that thinking comes from
0: Mm. yeah i think like I mean, there are so many points, obviously, throughout history that the zombie can be kind of linked to these um, real cultural moments. But I do think you're right in terms of Dawn of the Dead being this point of, like, really getting people into it. And then, you know, when we get to the 21st century, people are – I mean, that idea of having a theme, I think, is something that generally a lot of media wants to do more. But at the same time, we're now living in a climate where you can turn over – huge blockbuster films that are just like nothing (laughs) they're just like this aesthetic thing of like action and looking a particular way so certainly um there would have been I mean and there are a lot of zombie films that are that uh but living today when there's so many different kind of big anxieties. And I feel like, I mean, I, I it's probably some a case of living in the present and looking back and not really understanding what it was like to live in different points throughout history. Um, but it definitely feels like now we've got more big anxieties simultaneously oh, yes. preoccupying us. Um, so yeah, you've got the zombie terrorist and you have the zombie climate change and you've got the zombie viral infection and you've got all these different aspects. And um, I just think that, I mean, we do have vampires and we've got aliens and we do have different uh, really interesting types of creatures that do powerful productive work uh, but I maintain that the zombie is the most flexible and adaptable tool that I've come across so far like it can do a lot
2: you will get no argument from me that's, <laughs> that's, I agree 100% I think and and not to denigrate anybody that's interested in the many other like creatures and, and characters that populate all of pop culture. And there, there are endless ways, I'm sure, that you can make use of the vampire metaphor. And there might be somebody right now that we don't even know who's going to become a great filmmaker, who'll come up with the vampire story nobody's seen yet. But um, like you were just saying, ultimately the thing about the zombie as a shell of an idea is just how flexible it is. And that's, that's why it stood the test of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it says a lot that I'm doing a PhD where I use zombies, considering I'm not someone who would describe myself as, like, a zombie fan from a purely just Mm -hmm. enjoying media. Like, I've never been someone who's like, oh, I love zombie movies, or I love zombie video games or comics or whatever, Um, but I just found them so interesting that I was drawn to being like, yeah, I'll spend four years of my life (laughs) talking about (laughs) this.
2: There's a lot, even things that I discovered while writing uh, Journey that I'd never... Either I'd never known exactly or um, uh, put in more of a historic context in a way that I hadn't before, particularly some of the earlier stuff in the book, because the book's mostly chronological. Uh, some of the earlier stuff in the book that was fascinating to me that I hadn't delved into nearly as much as some other stuff. And it, it's, it really is the case. It's like you don't necessarily have to be uh, a fan to find joy in exploring the meanings and connections that inform these kind of things because and and this also is a good example of how you can use it to teach also because ultimately the subject is not nearly as important as the underlying structure how it impacts our culture how we use it to reflect our culture and you can plug out the zombie and plug in number of other things for me whether that would be superheroes or you know other kind of science fiction things and the the connections are still the interesting part so particularly like you're saying like for research it can be really fascinating to delve into the whys and wheres and hows of all these things and how it all connects and you don't necessarily have to be uh, totally devoted to the, the subject matter itself to be able to appreciate that
1: Okay, so you've kind of answered this question a little bit, but how, how do you approach the zombie in the classroom specifically? What what pedagogical or teaching value do you find in a zombie?
2: Well, the, the real short uh, answer that's not the semester-long answer is that, as we were just talking about, the zombie is sort of the closest creature in the whole horror pantheon to us. They are therefore this incredibly great nearly blank slate where you can put any kind of human interest story or exploration of human nature or fear that we're currently experiencing and use the zombie as a means of exploring that. In the classroom, my goal at all times is teaching students, particularly college-age students, although I've now taught everything from incoming uh, first-year students to returning students, so wide range of ages. But if you're talking about what's traditionally a college or university age, you're trying to make sure that after a lifetime for them of not getting the kind of education and media literacy and critical thinking that they should be getting since they were children, because most of our education worldwide doesn't focus on that in a way that it should, which is partly why we are where we are right now. But maybe that's for another time. (laughs) Um, But the goal is to teach these kids how to look at things that they may not have looked at beyond the surface level and realize that everything they're experiencing in media has meaning. There are messages, both conscious and unconscious, both intended and unintended. And they need to have the tools to think critically, to examine what's going on around them and to be conscious consumers of media and citizens that can make good choices. And the zombie is just one of many lenses you can use to examine the world. And in the class, I structure the class so that we have, like, let's say, 16 movies we're talking about throughout the course of the semester, maybe some books and comics and other things. We all watch the same movies. We have a discussion in class about it. And I guarantee you, within minutes of those conversations starting, the conversations are never something like, oh, it was cool the way that zombie took that guy's head off. No, instead what starts happening is a student starts saying, you know, why wasn't the woman in that, you know, why didn't she have more agency in this film? She's just an object for the men in the movie. What's going on with race in terms of this? What's going on? And pretty soon you have students talking about race and gender and political issues and economic issues. All the things you want them to be thinking about actively, but you're using entertainment and pop culture as a way to make them comfortable and to get them thinking about those ideas in that context. And that's how you use pop culture media of any kind to get those conversations going. And if you tried to just say, today we're going to discuss racial issues in 21st century America, you wouldn't get the kind of conversation you get if you instead say, let's take a look at uh, Night of the Living Dead and talk about what Ben's role is in this movie. And that gets you to that place. And I'm always amazed at the level of conversation and the fact that they will come up with things I've never heard of before or ideas I've never thought of before because they do get engaged with it
0: yeah i guess that's one of the really exciting parts of teaching is being able to bring up something and you've got like anywhere from 12 to 30 different full life experiences that are going to inform the discussion you're like oh i did not think about that before that was i'm going to take that away and kind of ponder on it a bit
2: absolutely absolutely and there's, there's no predicting what somebody can bring to it, and that's part of, the, you well know, that's part of one of the, the primary issues here is that you're also showing them your life matters, your opinion matters. You bring yourself to every media experience, like you move through life as yourself, and therefore, that, that's one of the reasons why from the beginning of every semester, I make sure they understand I'm not going to be there in every class to tell them, here are the six things I want you to believe is true about Dawn of the Dead. I want them to tell me what they see in it. And their opinions and their interpretations are as valid as mine, because they brought themselves to it. And that's the whole point.
1: Okay, so let's talk more broadly about pop culture um, as a teaching tool. You've brought various forms of mass media to the teaching space. How do you go about um this process of legitimizing that kind of scholarship, have you received much pushback on that?
2: <laughs> it's a very good question uh i the only the only active legitimizing I do is just getting in the classroom and and doing it, except to say that um doing things like this, interviews where we talk about it and uh, or interviews I do I have done with newspapers where we talk about you know, what I'm doing. That's as close as I get to any sort of active effort to legitimize or to help legitimize the use of pop culture and entertainment to get kids thinking about, you know, uh, the world around them critically. And yes, absolutely. There's pushback. I have never encountered pushback significantly from any of the institutions that I've actually worked with. Um, the closest I can think of, of any kind of pushback in an actual college or university was that when I first pitched the zombie course back in 2010, summer 2010, to the person who ran the department, uh, the program in the department where it was going to be taught, he, he wasn't the least bit uninterested in the pitch or, or, um, totally against it. He was just a bit bemused, like, well, can you really get a semester out of it? And within 10, <laughs> 15 minutes of me explaining it to him, he was like, okay, I see. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. So, I mean, that's, there was no pushback. The only pushback I have seen is the inevitable and predictable thing that occasionally when I do a podcast like this or, an, or a newspaper interview, and if, you know, if, you know, if, despite all the all the sanity that normally would prevail in these situations if someone actually leaves comments on you will inevitably get people who will turn up on those sites or on those articles to comment and at least in this country particularly with inevitable things like you know where well, is our taxpayer money going down the drain <laughs> or this is why america's failing because uh, we're teaching kids about movies and blah 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 and of course there's also it it i can't say it doesn't irritate me But there's also no winning with those people because Mm -hmm. they're not interested in hearing. They have no desire to have a conversation. And no matter what I do to explain it to them, they won't hear it. So you just work to make sure that the students you have leave that semester more capable of thinking critically so that maybe one day those kind of comments will go away. And that's the best you can hope for.
1: Okay, so you kind of covered this already, but how have your students responded to learning about topics like zombies or the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Um, what seems to have resonated more for students of this generation?
2: That's a, that's a, it's a very good question. Um, in, in general terms, there's the usual arc of these things. Like, you know, I'll get like a group of students come in. Some of them signed up for a course. like so Let's say it's a zombie course. They'll, they'll have signed up because they're a fan. Or, you know, oh, I've seen zombie movies. This will be easy. And uh, and then, unfortunately, they learn that they actually have to still write papers and do work. You know? <laughs> uh, and, th- and then there'll be people who are taking it just because, oh, it's a humanities requirement. I'll take care of that. And then there are a few people in the middle who will be already primed to realize that this could be something interesting. The goal is, hopefully, I get more of those people all along that spectrum on the same page by the end of the semester and appreciating what we've done and realizing that it's beneficial. Um, but yeah, what happens during the course of the semester is, and as I already said, it's, it's very gratifying when it happens too, is you really see people open up for one thing. I, one thing that was recurring thing for me was I often discovered that students would tell me in no uncertain terms that mine was the first course they'd taken where they were allowed to say their opinion. And that's truly Hmm. depressing. Yeah. I would often get, you know, I never had a teacher say that, you know, they wanted to hear what we thought. And I thought, geez, is that really the educational experience you're having? And so they're therefore more open to the idea of having a nice open conversation about something. They will, you know, share more uh, personal observations about the media and what their opinion is and like I said I always try to reinforce this idea that you know if you can establish a point of view and say this is what you think this means it's as valid as anything else and by the end of the semester I get people who genuinely are saying sometimes in so many words that they never realized you know how much meaning you could find in these things whether it's zombies or Marvel movies and and you hope that they go and apply that to everything else because you know Certainly, one thing is certain, we need more people out there who are thinking critically about everything around them, and uh, that's the goal. So, it's, on the whole, I would say the reaction from students is very positive, and it's usually very productive. I've rarely ever encountered anybody that I would say doesn't seem to be getting it, at least on some level, uh, and if there is anything extremely negative, no one's ever said anything to me. So for the most part, it's been a very positive thing.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, that idea of like, I mean, and as you say, depressing that students could be not not encouraged to be putting forward their perspectives in all of their um, education. Like that just seems to me such a fundamental aspect of education. Um, I know. And I also wonder, I mean, I don't know what the the standard kind of structure of classes is like in the US. uh, But in Australia, a pretty common model is to have uh, a lecture, which is traditionally more like, you know, the lecturer getting up and speaking. Um, Sometimes the lecturer will engage the students, sometimes they'll just kind of speak for that period. Uh, And that would generally be followed by a tutorial, which is supposed to be student led, like that's supposed to be the opportunity for the students to really kind of put into practice the ideas that they've just Um, got from that lecture and really kind of workshop things and ask questions and um, so that's kind of how we um, not always but frequently do it in uh, Australian universities and that works quite well although often first year students like you have to kind of teach that because they've just come from high school and that's not what it's like in high school and uh, you really got to emphasize like if you just sit there and don't say anything, these tutorials are going to be real boring. <laughs> it's not going to be yep. a lot to do. <laughs> I'm not going to reteach you what you just learned in a lecture or read in readings. Like, I want to talk about it with you. Um, and one thing I've also found really interesting is just kind of, because I mean, I'm, I'm still in my 20s, late 20s, but still in my 20s. So I forget, like, I feel like I'm at the same age as a lot of my students, but within a few years. Um, And already, though, I'm seeing that what the, like, key... Pop culture things that people are really resonating oh. with is just it's shifted a bit, and I'm like, oh, I've I've just got into the age where that's happened. Where I'm like, oh, the people in university are talking about different things to what I understand.
2: Yeah, I know that feeling. I'm <laughs> in my late forties now, and and I can't relate to anybody on any level at all anymore. Yeah. I'm glad I teach courses that are about like historical pieces of media because at least then we have those in common. <laughs> because I can't. I can't make sly references to stuff because they don't know what I'm talking about and I don't know what they're talking about. So,
0: yeah, I, I did an activity um, about a month ago where uh, we're we'll talking about the concept of heteronormativity and I wanted them to use like a character from a TV show or a movie to think about it. And I had that day, I would have taught about maybe 50 students because I had a few classes back to back. Actually, over two days, let's say like 60 plus. And I would have given them like 15 to 20 characters. And throughout all of the students, five of them were used throughout all the, the classes. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> clearly like what I thought yeah. was the range of characters because I'm like I'll do a really big range all different genres there'll be something for everyone and it was five characters which were chosen by like all 50 60 of my students so I was like okay that that gives me an indication of where people yep. are at at the moment <laughs> but I have learned Harry Potter is timeless apparently
2: yeah that seems to be standing the test of time very well and and transferring from one generation to the next now know, we might have a bit of a Hunger Games revival coming up now, too, because they're going to do the prequel.
0: Oh, so I didn't know that. that
2: yes. <laughs> She's writing a prequel book, and they're immediately putting it into development for the inevitable movie. So,
0: Well, you would. It was yeah. very
1: very successful.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's that,
0: too.
1: Okay. Okay, so Mia and I have been thinking about our roles as academic fans, or ACA fans, and how we... <laughs> negotiate the space of being a fan of a topic and having an audience or classroom who are class filled with fans of that topic and while still maintaining you know that critical and valuable uh, discussions that can be had from that so what role do you find fandom has in your work both as a fan yourself and as someone who speaks to fans in various settings
2: it is very complicated. Um, every, like I said at the beginning, everything I do is is some. Everything I do professionally is something that's grown out of something that I'm a fan of, or that I or that I've always loved. I mean, I I teach things that are things I would happily sit and watch all day anyway. I I publish books through ATB Publishing that are about Doctor Who and Star Trek and all the many things you know, comic book superheroes, all the stuff that I love. Um, I was actually thinking about this prior to our talk, too, because it's one of the more interesting things. I, I don't recall many people really asking me before the idea of balance and, and you know, how you balance that. and um, Because I get that, like, sort of inherent in the question also is the idea of, like, well, if you're a fan, can you truly be properly objective about material or present it in in a way that stays open. And I guess it goes back to one of the other things I said before about how much I try to dedicate myself to the idea that every student in the room has a voice and they have a valid point of view. And I guess it's not a great answer maybe, but it's the only one I can give is that I never stop being a fan of the many things that I love writing about or teaching or lecturing about. And it's part of that passion that keeps me going and makes me interested in in doing these things, whether it's publicly presenting about something or writing a book about all these zombie movies and and just loving doing that. Um, But I guess ultimately all you can do is try to balance that with an understanding that if you're going to do it, you also have a responsibility. You are trying to, let's say, represent history and cultural impact and meaning in a way that can help other people, and you have to keep your mind open to the possibility that some of the things you love also have flaws, and, (laughs) you know, you, you have to, and see, this is another thing. We could have a whole show about this. One of the things that I've seen time and again on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else is this... Absolutely horrific uh, situation in all kinds of fandom these days, among many other horrific situations in fandom, that it's either all or nothing with a lot of these people. Like, you know, if you love it, you better love it 100%. And you can't say that anything is bad because like, no, because if I'm a fan, an intelligent fan anyway... My responsibility as a fan, partly, is to also maintain a critical stance and point out what I think is something that needs pointing out, a flaw or, you know, an issue or poor representation, things like that. So uh, I guess ultimately, though, a lot of this comes down to the kind of person you are. I know there are many people out there who probably think, well, I'm a fan and everything I think is the way it is and there's no room for other opinions. And I think that's just a horrible way to be. So I always try to step back a bit and realize that I may love something. For instance, I'll give you one quick example is that I grew up loving the original Star Trek. It's one of the things as part of my childhood and, I read every book, and I I sought out everything about it, and I could recite to you off the top of my head all the many behind-the-scenes stories about what a progressive show it was in the 1960s and how it kicked down doors, and there's Uhura, and there's Chekhov from Russia, and all these things. And then in the last few years, revisiting it, particularly through my wife's point of view as well, but just in general also, come to realize just how regressive a lot of that show truly is and how much a product of its time it is. And it doesn't take away all the things about it that are positive or progressive, but you do also have to acknowledge the fact that it's a show from 1966 that has horrific representations of gender politics and so many other issues in it. And you could say that to some Star Trek fans and they will try to murder you. Mm-hmm. And, and you know that's the responsibility you should have as an academic or as a historian or as a teacher. You need to balance your fandom with the reality of the material of which you're a fan, and realize that nothing's perfect, and that you have to accept the rough with the smooth.
0: Yeah, I think my um my version of going back to something I loved as a child and being like, oh no, <laughs> well, was Red Dwarf for me. I loved Red Dwarf, oh, Dwarf growing up, and sure, rewatching it. Sure. I mean, I still get a lot of joy out of watching it, but there's a lot of moments where I'm like, oh okay. Um. <laughs> that that definitely sits differently with me now um oh absolutely yeah I mean I think though for me and this I don't think is something that has to be the case for everyone but for myself like I also genuinely enjoy being critical like it's not just uh I feel responsible like I feel like there's this responsibility of needing to be critical but I genuinely enjoy being like okay well let's look at this as a as an entire package and what are the things that I can get out of it and what are the things that I want to be critical because even being critical is a really productive thing like it's a, a way of recognizing what you want your media to do in the future and um, the more people who do that the more creators are going to be aware that that's what people want their media to do as well so like people need to be doing that work
2: I agree and and I think it's it, it may not be exactly on that point but sort of like one of the things I think I mentioned in the book is that reminds me of that idea I have while I was writing about our relationship with the things we love with the media we watch it's part of the relationship is the critical back and forth that you have with it and I enjoy that too I mean I, I, I could easily sit and have a conversation picking apart you know whether it's the minutiae or, or some kind of thematic element or something about these movies or a TV show and that can be part of your, your joy of experiencing this stuff is exploring it critically. But I guess it also comes down to the fact, are you the person like us, obviously, that do that? Are you the person who's going to sit there and go, ah, just watch it. Why can't you just watch it? And it's like, I don't want to be one of those people. I I hate that phrase. One of the ones I hate the most is that thing where, Somebody say, oh, the new movie is out. Is it any good? And they say, yeah, you got to turn your brain off for two hours, but it's a lot of fun. It's like, why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you ever do that?
0: You know what? I... (sighs) I, I don't actually mind doing that sometimes, but I need to be very aware that that's, like, that's what I'm doing. Like It's kind of like yes. you know the yes. same way that you go, I'm going to eat a really greasy hamburger right now, and it's probably <laughs> yes. not great for my body, but I'm going to really enjoy it at the time. <laughs> and, yes, like, and,
2: yeah. and my argument would be that even as you do that because of who you are and the fact that you like thinking critically about things and enjoy it, you're still probably functioning on more than one level like you're letting a level of you do the the brain off escapism part but it doesn't mean you're really entirely uh disconnected but that yeah it's it's a matter of degree but i i agree with you
0: Mm. i think actually i just want to add like an extra question to scott's question there so in um on our other podcast the clash of critics we recently did an episode where we actually put in the title like non scholarly discussion because even though all of our analysis of game of thrones um is very like uh it's like we are definitely fans in the like very very critical fans but we are absolutely fans when we do the show um uh, but this one we didn't want to be Um, Like, even though there was probably some critical discussion that came out in it, we didn't want that to be the primary focus, but we were very clear to kind of demarcate that particular episode as this is what we would consider to be non scholarly discussion. We are not thinking about this as a scholarly episode, whereas the other episodes are framed as that. Um, So, do you have any points where, uh, I mean, I would assume not in the classroom, but are there any kind of ways that you engage with media where you do go, actually, I'm going to draw a line here and recognize that? This is primarily a fan discussion, not a critical discussion.
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. I I mean, one of the things that I'm, you know, uh, most into over the years has been Doctor Who and, and I've done so much related to Doctor Who. And I mean, if you sit me down with a few people I know that are fans, we can easily talk about, you know, the history of the Time Lords or a million other things <laughs> going on in the show, where the idea of theme or meaning or anything like that is not coming up. We're just talking about the Dalek timeline and, you know, how they, this episode screwed that up and what are we going to do? And so, yeah, and, and I've always also, I've always been the kind of fan, I love continuity fests and I love stories where, whether it was in comics or, or who or a million other things, I love when writers come along like 20, 30 years later and come up with that one brilliant way of making something from decades ago make sense I love that kind of stuff. Mm. And that's nothing to do with exploring it academically. That's just with enjoying the storytelling and and going along for the ride. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think you would enjoy sitting down with my dad about Doctor Who. I grew up in a very, very <laughs> Doctor Who-oriented household. He's got That's, all the yeah, Big Finish right. audio CDs, all the books. Uh, he watches those like fan-made videos where they find the recovered audio and the set stills, and they animate yeah. the set stills. <laughs> like He's seen yep, all of those. <laughs> big fan. Yeah, that
2: sounds like a good conversation we have. <laughs>
0: Okay, so um, speaking of actually our other podcast, The Clash of Critics, um, where we talk about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, in that podcast, uh, we know that with our fans of, well, um, our listeners, I guess, of, of that podcast, the actual level of fandom in that audience has a lot of variety. So we will have listeners who have probably just watched the show Game of Thrones as each episode came out, the gear it came out, and that's it. They watched it that one time and... They enjoyed it. Uh, and then we also have the full on mega fans who are super into the law theory. They know the world a lot better than we do. Um, and, you know, personally, I've also recently lectured on Game of Thrones. I did a-, a lecture on disability Game of Thrones and it was to about 200 students. I was very aware that many of those people probably hadn't seen the show. So I had to kind of introduce particular characters with enough so that they could get something out of it. Um, and that was its own kind of interesting thing. So I guess my question is, to what extent do you feel like um, a student or a listener of your podcast or a reader of your books or whatever needs to um, really be familiar with a particular form of media in order to get something out of that media as a pedagogical tool? And to what extent can you get value from popular media as a tool if you're unfamiliar with it and also do you ever I know you said that you kind of watch the films with students but do you ever find yourself in in discussions with people where you know that they probably aren't very familiar with that media or maybe haven't seen it at all and you've kind of got to explain what you're talking about in order to talk critically about like what it did
2: that's also a very excellent question I, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that quite that way um I I so I'm also just answering off the cuff with with some of it. And uh, it occurs to me that from a pure teaching perspective, I can't imagine that it should matter at all if someone is familiar with a particular form of media for you to be teaching a course in critical thinking and media literacy. You should be providing the foundational material, the historical, the cultural the, the contextual stuff that enables you to then get to those conversations we were talking about earlier about race, gender, all these, all the kind of things we're trying to get to. So in other words, I would teach a zombie course with every expectation that there's going to be people in the room who know the movies as well, if not better than me, because they came in as fans and someone taking the course has never seen one before or even hates it, but took it because I think, well, this is going to be an easy A because it's the, the movie class. Um, And I owe it to them to give them the foundation for whatever they need to know to then get to the part we're trying to get to, which is really, this is how you can watch a movie and figure out what it means. And that doesn't rely on necessarily needing to know anything about the specific subject matter or the material. Um, You're trying to teach them skills in how to critically think about these things. And... I have to, because of the very nature of the material I'm working with, naturally it's going to be a range of people, people from the very passionate, you know, dedicated fan to the complete novice. And in in fact... Just as I'm thinking of it, I would, I'm would i thinking of some experiences I had in the past with some students like that. I would even argue your responsibility as a teacher is greater to the people that don't know anything about it, certainly, than to the people that do. Because the people that do, they're going to take care of themselves. But the students that don't, you need to provide them with that foundational material to get them to a place where they can think critically about it and understand what they're doing. They're the students you're trying to work the most with. Um, in terms of what you were saying in the question about podcasts or other things, that can be very different. For instance, a podcast, I know that everybody listening to my podcast is probably on some level a zombie or a horror fan. So I don't need to stop and explain like basic stuff. You know, it's like if we're talking in a podcast about a particular zombie movie and I say, saying these zombies are a little bit different from the Romero style, I don't need to explain Romero style mm. to anybody listening you know, I know they get that. Uh, to a certain extent, the book was a mix of these things, because the book was intended to be a book that a dedicated fan could enjoy without feeling like they were being, you know, zombie-splained too much. <laughs> um, uh, but I also wanted someone that didn't know anything about it to be able to read it and say, oh, now, now I get it, that's interesting. And so, like like you said earlier, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that there is that balance and also a fun tone uh it was a bit of a mix um but yeah i'm glad you asked that because I never really thought about it too much consciously but yeah i guess I, I would i would firmly come down the idea that it doesn't matter if someone knows the subject matter specifically like i've never seen a zombie movie that's fine you've watched movies you know what a movie is <laughs> we'll talk about the specific stuff and then we'll start talking about what you think it means and uh, And sometimes it's those people that have the most open minds and and the most willingness to explore all these ideas.
0: Yeah, I think um for myself, probably the times that I find it most challenging, but also I sometimes get some of the most interesting discussion are things like um conference papers where like mm. so i've I gave one recently ish. Uh, where um, Warm Bodies was the film that was kind of the focus. But uh, what I yep. was doing with that is um, like it was it was very much like talking about things like affect theory and like using the mechanisms of the, the zombies in Warm Bodies and the specific um, idea of being able to like experience someone else's emotions as this interesting take and using that as a tool to explore other forms of embodiment and thinking about it that way so for myself I'm like all right I've got 20 minutes how much of this am I willing to give to explaining what are the mechanisms of the zombies in warm bodies so that they've got enough to go off so you're kind of finding I think that's the challenge for me is like 20 minutes all right (laughs) we're Mm -hmm. gonna get it in first two minutes let's like put it out there and then go from there and um occasionally you'll kind of get someone raise a question being like oh i didn't explain that well enough i don't think but often like i'll get people being like oh i haven't seen the movie but i think it was really interesting what you were saying about this this and this and they'll kind of ask follow up questions about like oh does the movie explain this so um that it's it's challenging but has a great potential to be really rewarding
2: sure i also remember it's been it's been a while since a uh... The days when I was really getting going teaching the zombie course, but I also remember one of the things that was a standard uh, opening gambit on the first day uh, was to ask everybody what they think of when they hear the word zombie, and just go around the room. Mm. And uh, and it's just a you know simple little you know uh, typical teaching kind of thing, but it but it gave everybody an opportunity to get comfortable and say something, and it also demonstrated immediately. You know, how many people say, oh, the, the you know, corpse, that's come back to eat brains. Okay, good. And, uh, and then occasionally you also figure out what people in the room have certain um, interests in other disciplines. I remember one, one student, their immediate reaction was a computer that's been slaved to a network or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, I thought, yeah, okay, <laughs> well, you work with computer networking then, because I wouldn't have thought of that right away, but that's great. And then, you know, so that kind of thing. And that's also a way of seeing, you know, what's what's your range of initial understanding and awareness, and then you go from there.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you've been doing this for a while now. Have you seen the kind of common response shifted all over time? Has it evolved?
2: Um, Also a good question. I don't think so too much. I think that... I think that on average, it stayed pretty much the same. And I think a lot of that is probably 75, 80 percent because of The Walking Dead mm. that the, that show. I mean, I started teaching the class the fall that The Walking Dead debuted on television. So it was quite a timing thing for me but what's also amazing about that is how that television show has become basically the de facto flag bearer for the entire genre mm. and so we're now in an entire generation of people for whom zombie is not Romero is not anything except robert kirkman's walking dead and walkers and so that's the standard for for a lot of people
0: yeah i mean i like in my thesis i spend a bit of time like kind of unpacking this question of how flexible can we make this question of what is a zombie? Um, and I am always on the side of very flexible. <laughs> um, but it is very interesting to see. Like, I'm always fascinated by, like, really militant fans of the zombie where they're like, this is oh the only God. acceptable one. And, like, the um, the the Simon Pegg quote of, uh, you know, you can't stab a – you know, you can't kill a vampire with an MDF stake. And Mm -hmm. zombies don't run. (laughs) And I'm like, but zombies sometimes run. (laughs) Zombies
2: run very often. mm. Yeah. I I, I forget if we've ever had this exchange online or any, but my God, the thing I get, I still get at least once every couple months now, it's thinned out a bit, are the people that show up demanding that I explain to them why 28 days later counts as a zombie. (laughs) It's like, because it does. And yes, I can go through the whole thing. But it does.
0: Well, I've decided that at this um, zombie conference that I'm going to in a few weeks in Dublin, the movie I'm going to be focusing on will be the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I'll see what what reactions I get for that.
2: (laughs) Very nice. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) All right. I want to hear how that works out.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So, Arnold, you mentioned your podcast. Tell us a little bit about what you have going on right now.
2: Well, Doctor of the Dead is a podcast that started, if I remember right, back in 2014 with uh, a producer and uh, partner who basically was his idea initially was the idea of let's do a podcast where we leverage some of my notoriety and uh, uh, zombie scholarship and writing and, and watch Walking Dead every week and talk about The Walking Dead. And then we can also uh, filter in some other things. And so it was very much sort of initially a Walking Dead a reaction podcast, and I would take every episode as we watched it and apply some of my thinking to it. So what are they trying to say? Well, over the years, we did a lot of episodes, and we started expanding to many other things. We covered Z Nation on Sci-Fi Channel for a while and iZombie and talked about many movies, including all of the Romero stuff. And he eventually moved on to some other projects and other areas of media, and I took over running the podcast uh, my wife joined me for it, and we have discovered in the last couple of years that although we're keeping it going and have really expanded it to try to just discuss horror in general and whatever we're revisiting or or taking a look at, that uh, as we've been working more and more on the publishing company, it's a little harder to keep it regular and it's actually been a few months since the last episode and the only thing we're grateful for at this point is that evidently we have a few dedicated listeners who are always happy to come back when we pop back in again. We had an episode, I think it was the last one was in March, and we were in the middle of doing a Scream retrospective. We had talked about all the Halloween movies, and then we were covering all the Scream movies, and we've left off just before Scream 4. So uh, we feel that my interview with you guys tonight is going to jumpstart the, the necessity of getting back to <laughs> Doctor of the Dead. And uh, she has promised to watch all the reanimator movies with me, so we'll, we'll definitely have to talk about those when we get back to it.
1: So how does your podcasting relate to your ac- academic work? To what extent do you feel podcasts can be a form of scholarship,
2: Arnold? That's oh, no, one in a, another in a series of brilliant questions um, <laughs> that nobody's ever asked. Um, well, initially... Uh, when we did the podcast, the idea was sort of in reverse. The idea was what can we benefit from, from the work I'm doing academically to uh, get both of us, me and my producer partner, more exposure and, and, uh, and have some fun conversations along the way too – And the idea was, well, let's apply all the stuff that I'm doing academically and and teaching zombies and media literacy to The Walking Dead on a weekly basis. Um, The reverse, however, is that Doctor of the Dead becomes sort of uh, one of several calling cards for me of like, here's a, a wealth of material that I've recorded over the years and hope to continue to do, even if it's quite a bit more sporadic. Uh, that demonstrates the kind of thing kind of uh, thing that I do in Journey to the Living Dead and in my courses and that I can bring to the table in other projects as well. Um, I see the podcast not just as entertainment for people, but maybe also an opportunity for them to learn something like they would if they were sitting in class and get a sense of how you can look critically at a piece of media and, and in particular for Doctor of the Dead, not just zombies, but many of the horror movies and TV shows that we talk about and how horror functions as a genre now more than ever to enable people to process real-world fear through fictional fear and provide that catharsis. So I feel it's a bit of an extension of the classroom, but not in a very formal way, just in in a sort of loose and hopefully entertaining way. Um... And also, since I have always been trapped in Adjunct Hill and have never been full-time, I always uh, hope that all the many projects that I do at least, you know, hopefully get my name out there that much more and and show people that I have some things to offer. And and, uh, I like the idea of keeping the podcast going for that reason, too. Uh, And uh, Natalie and I have a lot of fun doing it, and, and we always find that Uh, we do get replies from people who listen who say they're like, well, I never thought about it in that way before. And if even one person feels that way, then obviously we're doing something right. So we'll keep doing it.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, our podcast started from, our department has Friday afternoon drinks. And after many deep conversations about (laughs) things like Game of Thrones and Buffy and stuff, uh, Scott and I were like, we should probably (laughs) like... Put this conversation to more work <laughs> and like, you know, really get something out of it beyond our, our extensive conversations over drinks. Um, but yeah, like a pretty early in, I decided like this absolutely for me is a form of scholarship. It's intended for public audiences. And I think that's something we're pretty clear about. Um, that we don't want someone to have to have, you know, even finished high school to be able to listen and be like kind of going long board with us. Um, We do bring in particular um, theoretical concepts and we'll sometimes, you know, put like, you know, Foucault or Butler or something as a little citation in our episode description, if that's something we have explicitly discussed, but we still don't want someone to have to have any kind of background in that to get something out of it um so yeah around that time I'm like you know what it's it's going on my cv every bio I send for a publication or a conference I'm like my podcasts are in there (laughs) it's a key part of what I do as a as a scholar it's like a it's a big part of my work and um you know some of my students end up listening to it I think it's a nice way of like being I mean they probably get a slightly different side of me because I feel like I do have my my podcaster mirror and teacher me and all those different sides of myself. So I don't know how different it is to listen to it, but I think sometimes that's the kind of discussion that really can get to someone that they're like, Oh yeah, this is a lot more approachable. It's a lot more relaxed. You kind of, you don't have to do the readings to understand it. Uh-huh. Um,
1: yeah. So at this point, was there anything else you wanted to talk about Arnold? Um.
2: Well, I am. Uh, we did briefly mention I'm, uh, uh, that I had also applied the same general approach to um, a course in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I've taught a number of courses about various aspects of comics and superhero mythology over the years. And uh, back around 2015, I did basically the same skeletal structure as the zombie class we did it for uh, Marvel. Right around when Age of Ultron was coming out, which actually bizarrely worked out perfectly in terms of like a 16 week semester now you'd really have to crush things down fit to fit <laughs> um,
0: do different phases
2: <laughs> yeah i know the phases well that's the thing so so i did journey to the living dead and and while by no means am i done talking about zombies or probably writing about them i do feel like journey of the living dead like put a period on a certain aspect of it all and and really like put it all together in one form that I was happy with that consolidated all this work. And I thought, well, uh, if this is a calling card, what's the other one for me? And, uh, having spent like 20 years in the comics industry and teaching comic book literature for decades and doing the Marvel thing, I thought, well, I should really be nailing down some stuff about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all those characters that I also love. And I do have also a very, very sporadic podcast on that Marvel Universe the Cinematic Universe Review um, so uh, we announced it a little while ago and uh, I consider it more of a threat than an announcement at this point but <laughs> I, I evidently committed myself now to writing a three book series on all three phases of the current as it exists Marvel Cinematic Universe using something of the same approach as Journey of the Living Dead but it very well may take slightly different form. Um, it's still sort of coalescing and there's still a lot of thinking to be done about the structure and design of the book the way Journey is. But I suspect some of the same things that you liked in Journey particularly are things that will turn up in, um, in the MCU books and um, things like the food for thought and those, those kind of things and certainly the idea of maintaining that balance and tone. But I'm basically going to be writing a book for each phase and looking at every single movie and all the TV shows and all the peripheral material and just describing it right now. I still can't understand why I came up <laughs> with this idea, but I'm, that's what I'm doing. So, so yeah. Um, and uh, that's my next big project as far as books are concerned.
1: That's great. So three volumes by <laughs> 2020.
2: Yeah, I don't know. That's, <laughs> that sounds right, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, sure, why not?
0: Okay, alright. I don't know what kind of, you know, magic MCU-style <laughs> stone time-bending ability you have, but good luck with all of that. I don't know.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I will need it. So. <laughs> we'll see how it all shakes out.
1: Well, on that note, Thank you for joining us today. Arnold, it has been fascinating to hear about your work around zombies, popular culture, and the MCU.
2: Oh, no problem at all. It was a pleasure chatting with both of you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You can find Arnold on Twitter at Doctor of the Dead and ATB Publishing at ATBPublishing.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. ATB has the latest volume in their pop culture essay collection series, Outside In, coming out in late summer, early fall which is on the TV shows Angel and Firefly, called Outside In Gains a Soul. So that will be very interesting. (laughs) They also have an official biography of horror icon Mick Garris in the works for the end of the year. As noted, Arnold will be writing a three-volume book series on the MCU for 2020 as well, so look out for that. Links to Arnold's Twitter, ATB Publishing, and of course, Journey of the Living Dead, will be in the episode description.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatches. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help us with ongoing running costs.
1: You can also support us by rating us on iTunes or on your podcatcher of choice, or by recommending Trope Watchers to a friend.
0: If you're a fan of Trope Watchers and the worlds of Westeros and Essos, check out our sister podcast at Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: Our website is troopwatches.com. We are on social media at Troopwatches, and you can email us at tropewatchers at gmail.com.
0: Until next time, I'm Mia.
1: And I'm Scott, and we are your Trope Watchers.